0: Um, Just to introduce our um, final but by no means least speaker, Um, Tim Knox, whose particular bailiwick here in Lincoln's Inn Fields is the Sir John Soane's Museum just across the square and the main way that most people find the Hunterian Museum because we direct them to your museum and then just tell them to cross the park. Um, You've got all the signs. Um, He's going to speak for us today on um, Cottingham's Museum of Medieval Art um, and... um, got some fantastic images I think for us to see. Thank you.
1: Thank you Jane. The the Museum of Medieval Art uh, was the creation of the architect Lewis Knuckles Cottingham who is a minor but rather interesting and in fact rather scholarly architect of the Gothic Revival who is best known today for an influential patent book for ornamental metalwork, ironwork, called the Ornamental Metalworkers Director, published in 1823. When I became director of um, the Soane Museum a few years ago, I started to get interested in research this near-contemporary counterpart to the Soane, Cottingham's Museum of Medieval Art. Was it a lost rival to Soane's extraordinary house museum? Um, Louis Knuckles cottingham was born in Laxfield in Suffolk in 1787. He's the son of a farmer and was said to be of an ancient and highly respected family. And he began his architectural studies locally before going up to London in about 1810 to complete his architectural education. He may have travelled to Europe and possibly saw the atmospheric Musée des Monuments Français of the antiquary Alexandre Lenoir seen here, housed in the secularized convent of the Petit Augustin in Paris. Here, between 1793 and 1815, Lenoir displayed the royal monuments, tombs, and architectural fragments, many of which he had rescued from the destructive fury of the revolutionary mob in a series of highly evocative displays, illustrating chronologically the history of France, Genuine fragments were supplemented with casts and replicas as well as the decorative arts of each era and plenty of stained glass. Lenoir's museum has been cited as both the first museum of medieval art and a pioneering display of period rooms and it's perhaps the closest counterpart to Cottingham's museum and I strongly suspect it was its principal inspiration. By 1814, Cottingham um, had set up his own architectural practice at 66 Great Queen Street, just down the road from Sir John Soane's residence in number 13 Lincoln's Inn Fields. And I show you here the um, monk's yard at the museum. Um, now, um, Soane had been established just two years at that address. It's interesting to speculate what influence Soane might have had on the genesis of Cottingham's collection. We know that Cottingham moved in antiquarian circles. He was friendly with John Carter, Thomas Gayfair, Edward Blore, Henry Shaw, William Capon, all these sort of London Society of Antiquaries people. In 1822, he brought out two rather splendid illustrated publications, one on Westminster Hall and the other one on Henry Seventh Chapel at Westminster. And it's significant that Soane ordered a copy of the latter for his own library. And in the preface to that work... Um, it informs us that Mr. Cottingham gives lessons on civil architecture for which purpose he has made an extensive collection of models and casts from the very best remains of Grecian and Gothic buildings. It's interesting that, like Soane's Academy of Architecture, Cottingham's collection was very much used for the purposes of instruction. In 1825, being recommended, um, this is a, a, a plate of, of, of details from that um, show, um, Um, In 1825, being recommended as an architect well-skilled in Gothic architecture, Cottingham was appointed as as architect for the restoration of Rochester Cathedral, then much decayed and mutilated, the work which continued until 1840. And his discovery of the tomb of Bishop Sheppey in one of the blocked-up arches of the choir was commemorated by the publication of an account of its discovery, illustrated by engravings, which appeared in 1825. And the plate from this account gives us some idea of the casts and models of details um, he was procuring um, uh, uh, for his collection. And in fact, he ensured the original fragments from the tomb canopy, this is more of it as well, were carefully preserved in the cathedral crypt. And he didn't pinch them himself, at least. And he took immense pains to preserve the original polychromy. On the effigy itself. And the engraving showing the discovery of Bishop Sheffield's tomb must depict Cottinger himself, and it's the only portrait of him known, and it's the rather sort of flabby faced individual gesturing towards the tomb. In 1828, Cot- Cottinger moved his collections to premises on the Waterloo Bridge Road, part of a development of houses, of houses and shops he himself had designed for the speculator John Field in 1826. Number forty-three Waterloo Bridge Road um, is on the corner of Boyce Street, later renamed Anne Street, and was the end of a short terrace of three shops and a lodging house called the Duke of York's Hotel. Um, It wasn't a purpose-built museum in the sense of Soane's establishment at Lincoln's Inn Fields, and its modest four-storey stock brick exterior, topped with little Grecian acroteria, gives no hint as to the accumulation of Gothic marvels within. Actually, the entrance to the museum was gained not through the shop front but via a side door round the corner on Ann Street with an arch made up from salvaged Norman dog-tooth ornament surmounted by a little stone shield. A contemporary, very similar house survives on the other side of the road and gives us a good idea of its scale and arrangement. That's the Caprini restaurant. Um, But um, sadly... um, as you will hear, the, um, uh, the museum itself um, does not survive today. And the presence of a side door and the c- surviving contemporary descriptions suggest that Cottingham's collection occupied two sizable galleries and numerous other rooms to the rear and basement of the premises. The Cottingham family he had married uh, Sophia Cotton in 1822 and they had two sons and a daughter, must have lived upstairs, with an unusually elegant drawing room. We know that these are the details from their first-floor drawing room. The door cases themselves probably salvaged, um, and they possibly even lived next door as well. Perhaps Cottingham established his architectural office in the shop in the front of the house, with the abundantly stocked and elaborately fitted-up museum to the rear, acting as both a resource for private study and a public attraction. And it was from this address that Cottingham operated until his death there in 1847. In 1829, he brought out a second volume of his book on Henry the 7th Chapel, and he won the competition for the restoration of Maudlin College Chapel, one of his most highly regarded works, uh, although low church objections prevented the installation of the 32 carved stone statues of saints designed by Cottingham and modeled after his um, uh, direction in the niches of the reinstated reredos. In the early 1830s, Cottingham was involved in w- a series of well-publicized sort of conservation campaigns, the campaign to save the Lady Chapel of St. Saviour's Southwark, now Southwark Cathedral, threatened with demolition by the approaches for the new London Bridge. Then another antiquarian cause célèbre was the rescue of Crosby Hall uh, in Bishopsgate, by then degraded as use as a warehouse. And these public spirited campaigns led to Cottingham being elected as an honorary member of the Society of Antiquaries of London in 1832. But they also supplied more casts and more exhibits for his collection. And in that year, he exhibited at the Royal Academy a watercolour now lost, tantalisingly entitled, part of Mr Cottingham's studio of English antiquity. And it was doubtless a view of one of those apartments in the museum on the Waterloo Bridge Road, and I hope one day that a finely rendered view of an antiquarian interior will be recognized for what it is, because Cottingham was a very talented draftsman. This is his RA exhibition perspective for a design for remodeling the south front of Coombe Abbey in Warwickshire. The collection was clearly open to the public. Uh, In a letter to the Fishmongers Company, Uh, Cottingham stated that his collections formed at great cost in his time and patrimony had been viewed by several noblemen and many distinguished literary characters as well as by numerous professional friends and it was probably open by appointment to respectable people for a small fee. Interestingly, Soane's Museum was always free. Now, Cottingham was by now firmly established as an authority on Gothic architecture and known for his careful restorations of ancient structures but also his domestic work uh, in that idiom, for patrons requiring large or small country houses. And this is Snellston Hall, a now lost house uh, in Derbyshire. Um, Cottingham died at his house in the Waterloo Bridge Road in 1847 from heart disease and dropsy, and his will left his museum and collections to his widow, Sophia, but stipulated that his business should be continued by his eldest son, Knuckles Cottingham, who completed many of his works, uh, notably at Hereford and Bury St. Edmunds, before perishing en route to America when his ship, the Arctic, foundered off Cape Cod in 1854. These, then, are the bibliographical essentials of Lewis Knuckles Cottingham. But what did his museum actually look like? As we've seen, the museum occupied the rear of a terraced house on the corner of Waterloo Bridge Road, this Anne Street, um, it's where this, the IMAX cinema now stands and in fact if you stand that um, lamppost is really probably the front door from where the house was. The site was cleared in 1949 to prepare for this, the Festival of Britain um, in, of 1951 uh, but can be clearly seen in this 19, um, 1871 Ordnance Survey map. I say clearly seen, I'm trying to think where it is now. Uh, LAUGHTER um, I'm not even going to try and scramble up there and point it out, but it's under there somewhere. Um, they were built on land owned by the Archbishop of Canterbury um, and part of the development of the southern approaches to Waterloo Bridge. And it was a pretty unappetizing area, actually. I mean, these are this was further towards the docks. Um, and this is another one. It, it had a kind of slightly kind of English sort of a you know, South Bank Adelphi feel to it, according to contemporary descriptions. Um, the Civil Engineer and Architects Journal um, uh, in 1840 wrote about how Mr. Cotting the architect, had invited a numerous party to a conversazione at his Museum of English Antiquities in the Waterloo Bridge Road. And we certainly were never so much surprised in passing through the numerous rooms to witness such an immense collection of specimens, about 31,000 we understand, of domestic and ecclesiastical architecture, painting, sculpture and furniture. Every artist and lover of antiquities should not fail to visit this museum. Next month we intend to give a description of it. And sadly, the civil engineer reneged on its promise and no description of Cottingham's museum appeared in the journal the following month. But luckily in 1850, four years after Cottingham's death, a slim but informative, descriptive memoir um, uh, of the Museum of Medieval Architecture and Sculpture, it was called that by then, was pub- produced with the auctioneers Christie and Manson as part of a concerted campaign waged by the Cottingham family to and admirers to persuade the government or the trustees of the British Museum to purchase the collection en bloc for the nation. This, together with the catalogue of sale of the museum, which was produced by the antiquary Henry Shaw for Mrs. Foster and Son's auction on um, the premises on the 3rd of November 1851 and subsequent days, form a melancholy but fascinating record of its appearance and contents before its dispersal. And the preface to this memoir explains this fine and extensive collection of architectural examples was made by the late Mr. Cottingham during the practice of up to 35 years for the purpose of professional study, and comprises original specimens, models, casts, furniture, decorations, from the most perfect remains of each epoch and style, arranges apartments of appropriate character, thus forming a complete and practical illustration of, in the study of English architecture, ecclesiastical and domestic, from the period of the Norman invasion to the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And using the memoir and the catalogue, of cell you can actually reconstruct Cottingham's museum. And actually, I think maybe we should ask you to do a similar process, because actually that's the way to do it, I think, via, um, you know, um, on, on a website, um, instead of this rather awful plan, <laughs> which we did... Um, But basically, you came off Anne Street into an anteroom, which is described as a small chamber in the style of Elizabeth the Reign, with a chimney piece of stone, richly carved, carved panelling, picture frame and cornice. Uh, There was a bust of Shakespeare from his monument on Stratford-upon-Avon, mounted on a plinth. And there were a selection of Elizabethan relics, including a pair of fire dogs enamelled, once the property of St. Thomas More, a rare portrait of Queen Elizabeth on panel, and a ale jug found in Shakespeare's garden at Stratford. And the next room, the Elizabethan parlour, um, was likewise entirely fitted up in the taste prevalent in the reign of Queen Elizabeth. And the ceiling was um, a richly panelled one, original from the ancient palace of Bishop Bonner in Lambeth, many years since destroyed. And there was also a table said to be from Nonsuch and a daybed reputed to have been with Queen Anne Boleyn in the Tower. Cottingham's atmospheric interiors may are important as they seem to be the first attempt in England to conjure up um, entire historicist interior out of combined old and new work, right down to the ancient Elizabethan fire stove, the carpet with matching hearthrog and an ancient cut velvet hanging to the window. Um, And the source of that ceiling, Bishop Bonner's ceiling, that was a real ceiling cut out and installed, was this place, um, an old house in Lambeth, latterly an inn, demolished in 1836, which gives a possible date for the creation of this unusually sustained and coherent antiquarian interior. And then there was a on the other side was a first gallery with a very rich ceiling pierced by a lantern, seen here. And the glazing all the windows, which you can just see the top of one here, came from the um, chapel attached to the almshouses of Queen Catherine by the tower, the whole of which were taken down to make room for the present docks when that charitable foundation was removed to Regent's Park. And this is a view of that um, uh, um, uh, monument. And then the ceiling itself came from Crosby Hall. That's the ceiling again. It came from the council chamber of Crosby Hall um, and uh, again it's, it's that's now down at Chelsea but there were other buildings in that complex where he presumably got it, it, hold of it um, the, the whole building was was um, um, the, the ceiling was obtained from the sale of someone called Charles Yarnall's collection in 1825 and then there was also a wonderful fireplace from the star chamber in Westminster um, and I show you this is one of Uh, Cottingham's interiors at Snellston Hall and I think this gives you a very good example of the sort of look he was attempting and note how the ceiling is in fact copied from that ceiling from Bonner's Palace and there were also a great many of the statues he had designed for Magdalen College Chapel and a great um, uh, screen of Flemish workmanship of the date of about 1450 this is the details of the chapel and the chimney piece and then there was another, after the first gallery was another anteroom, and then there was a north gallery which formed a kind of dog-legged extension extending from the back of the house. Um, and that had a carved oak ceiling from the time of Henry VII and yet more panelling, uh, this time from Leia Marney in Essex, a great um, house. And then there was another window from St. Catherine's by the tower. Um, and then this is the sale catalogue showing some of the things that were sold off, including statues. And there were even a number of, um, this is some um, panelling, and then there were even classical antiquities such as that um, uh, canopic vase and the the, the head of a a girl from Pompeii. Um, Interestingly, that north gallery was built across the back garden of a neighbouring house, rather as Soane had commandeered the back gardens of his neighbours in Lincoln's Inn Fields for his um, museum. And, um, again, it had extraordinarily elaborate sort of canopies and so on. And, again, this is a photograph of the lost interiors at Snellston, suggesting some of the polychromy that, um, I suspect, lurked in this extension. And then there were also very extensive cellars under the house which contained yet more panelling and fragments. This is from Soames Museum, showing the sort of display, I assume, uh, existed at Cottingham's Museum. Sadly, all, none of this is ever commemorated by photographs, and until that watercolour turns up, we'll never know what it looked like. And again, this is from Snellston, showing a display, a bookcase he designed, yet um, furnished with elaborate um, medieval examples of medieval craftsmanship, which we know Cottingham also acquired. Um, the, the strange, rather subterranean character of Cottingham, of much of Cottingham's Museum, because a lot of it was underground, is attested by uh, other authorities, including the Gentleman's Magazine, which, when decrying its potential dispersal in 1850, um, talked about it as being in the contracted basement of his private residence. But the only first-hand account of an actual visit is that of William Holman Hunt and other members of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood in 1849 or 1850, and, um, oh, sorry, this is the, the, what the basement must have been like. All the vaults, I think, were just packed with things as well. And um, it's worth quoting in full. According to Holman Hunt's 1905 memoir, Pre-Raphaelitism and the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, after the exhibition of his now very celebrated picture, A Christian Pursued by the Druids at the Royal Academy, Hunt had been approached by Knuckles Cottingham um, an architect of about 35 years of age, the son of the late Lewis Cottingham, the celebrated restorer and builder of Gothic churches and cathedrals, with a small commission for some painted spandrels. He also placed commissions with Dante Gabriel Rossetti and Thomas Woolner, and our whole party was invited by this stylish and much-bescented appreciator to his house on the Waterloo Bridge Road. There, after surveying the Gothic chambers and the other chambers of the house, were, uh, treasures in the other chambers of the house, we were led to a magnificent balustraded 14th century flight of steps with pillars and groin covering leading down to what had originally been a coal cellar, now occupied by canopied tombs, statues, family effigies, and in what must have been further excavations were columns and arches of a chapel crypt, while in places where light could be, could be gained, stained glass in the casements of the choicest rarity, all of which his father had improved off the faces of the sacred edifices in which the firm had been called upon to restore. In those days, this form of iconoclasm was regarded as meritorious rather than otherwise, for the restorer had doubtless replaced everything considered unnecessary in what was considered to be the correct early English style, and the loss of historic interest was in no way to be accounted for. And then Hunt goes on to relate how Knuckles's sharp practice and refusal to pay for his commission and records with grim satisfaction, his death by drowning um, shortly after his while emigrating to America. And it's interesting, this is uh, Hunt's Mariana showing the stained glass, which he, um, I suspect was rather similar to what he experienced. Now, Hunt's recollection of Cottingham's museum was pretty hostile and probably written down half a century after the visit, but it shows that people couldn't fail to be impressed by the sheer scale and comprehensiveness and quality of Cottingham's collection despite its less-than-ideal setting. And the decision by Cottingham's widow and children to sell the museum in 1850 is hardly surprising. Um, Formed at vast outlay and labour and cost, it must have been very much the toy of its creator and must have been really expensive to maintain. And so the sale catalogs of things were were, were, um, supplied. And there was quite a campaign to try and rescue the collection, um, they hoped the British Museum would, would acquire it. They showed no interest. Um, they even said, you know, speculated how it could be accommodated. Even a suburban locality would do. Even the terminus of a railway station or the Riding House of Brighton. But um, nevertheless, it's, um, we also know that Pugin himself, despite the fact that many architects supported its acquisition for the nation, people like Sir George Gilbert Scott, Waterhouse, Shaw and Seddon and other prominent figures, campaigned for... It's keeping Cottingham's museum. It was Pugin himself who was instrumental in delivering its death blow, and he writes in about 1851 to John Hardman, we rejected the idea of buying Cottingham's collection last night. And then in another letter he says, "Um, um, I'm looked upon now as the man who upset the purchase of Cottingham's collection, but I could not do otherwise. In my conscience, they wanted £7,000, and any fellow could get the cast for himself for £500 and twice as good in my own belief, is that when they pull it down, it will all be muck and broken plaster, only fit for the rubbish man's cart. And the sale did take place, everything lotted up, and even the larger items, such as Bishop Bonner's ceiling and the Crosby Place ceiling, were also uh, lotted up, and the windows from St Catherine's Chapel. We know that the Reverend Dr Drake, who was vicar of St Pancras, bought this famous Flemish altarpiece, a uh, Mr. Pernell of Stanscombe Park bought a lot of stuff. He was apparently forming a comprehensive museum illustrative of art. Um, and the British Museum bought a processional cross, supposedly from Glastonbury, and a lantern, while the New York Museum now forming, which I think must have been the Brooklyn Museum, acquired the marble African girl's head from Pompeii. And, but the builder, reporting mid-sale, thought it a matter of regret that members of the architectural profession have not availed themselves so extensively as they ought to have done. And I suspect a great deal of it was undersold. But quite a lot of it, uh, of the collection, especially the plaster casts, found their way into the architectural museum at, established at Cannon Row a, few, a year or so later. And then eventually, via the architectural museum in Tufton Street, were eventually inherited by the Victorian Albert Museum. And if you look right up at the cast courts, you know, all those funny little casts up on the balcony, quite a lot of those seem to be Cottingham casts. Now, Cottingham's museum was scattered. Knuckles' Cottingham was lost on his way to America. No, one's what hap- no, one's, no one knows what happened to Mrs. Cottingham, who lived on until 1871. The premises in Waterloo Bridge Road survived on in commercial occupation until 1949. They were actually pawnbrokers when it was recorded by the Survey of London shortly before demolition. And... um, Sorry, this is Pugin, the the villain. And, sorry, this is the architectural... This is a a survey done for the Survey of London in preparation for the demolition of all this area. Um, And, oddly enough, they do record that there were still medieval fragments embedded in that building. And these are... Drawings in the Survey of London um, uh, collection, uh, now administered by English Heritage, Colin Thom, and there's also a plan which shows the vaults, um, and they um, are now in in the NMR in Swindon. But what's particularly interesting is, um, sorry, these are just lots of little drawings, and then in the Survey of London they actually did do a full survey of Bishop Bonner's ceiling, and indeed. But this is what I particularly like. This is uh, Geoffrey Fletcher's The London Nobody Knows, 1962. And he actually managed to, during demolition for the Festival of Britain site, he actually managed to sketch the house as it came down. And he writes in this book, I've illustrated an oddity from the site of a new traffic roundabout in the Waterloo Road. The Gothic arch, a genuine one, was below premises occupied by a pawnbroker. Years ago, this house was occupied by Ellen Cottingham, designer of terraces and iron balconies. Extensively employed as a researcher of old churches, he assembled a rich collection of carvings and other church fittings, which ought, of course, to have been left intact. No doubt all these restorer's relics will be swept away long before this book is published. Indeed they were. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.
0: very much for that, Tim. Um, if the two panellists can take a seat. Um, and we're very pleased to take questions from the floor um, to both of our afternoon speakers. Um, interesting to see um, the idea of the extension quite um, key between the two um very different collections at opposite end of the country and what two Londoners could actually bring together into uh, amazing collections but open it to the floor for questions.
2: Firstly thank you for two very interesting papers. Um, This question's for Tim. Um, Just getting back to Pugin and his desire to get rid of the Cottingham collection I find that quite perverse because he was a um a gothicist himself um I wonder if there was some professional rivalry
1: I have at no stake doubt. here I because no
2: yeah. I'm not sure of the dates but I know Pugin was involved in the Thames Bank workshops which which was an extensive collection of casts of medieval yes. architecture at this time and I'm not sure if that was in existence before the sale of the Cottingham I, Connection. I the following
1: year that was set up. So it's right. of 1850, and that's 51, I think, the first museum.
2: So I, I guess that he wanted to stake his own claim for, for being the... Or
1: it might have been. I mean, in his letter to Hardman, he says that, you know, they want £7,000 for it. You can actually get cast like this. And I think a lot of it might have just... And I think also the recognition a lot of it was embedded in the walls of this funny little extension... And it's interesting that, you know, quite a lot of it was still there when the building was pulled down in 1962, you know, and God knows where it went. Um, so I suspect, you know, even though all those windows from St. Catherine's by the Tower were lotted up, I think probably it was, you know, all expenses, you know, for the purchaser, you know, that chilling little line in a, in a sale catalogue, and a lot of people just never bid for them.
2: Um, I wonder, could you speculate a little bit more about why the collection was refused for the nation?
1: We've got a magnificent history here in Britain of looking a gift horse in the mouth, and I think it's just part of a long tradition of that. You just think of, you know, Kaloost Gulbenkin offering his collection to the National Gallery and, you know, them interning him instead as an enemy alien, and now it's in Lisbon. Um, I think it's just a question of... It's, you know... I don't know if you've ever had a kind of bereavement and had to do house clearance. It's quite easy just to think, Oh, I'll just walk away from it. And I think that's probably what Mrs. Cottingham felt, you know, and just wanted to be rid of everything. And I think they did their very best. I mean, let's face it, they produced two catalogues, you know, the memoir and this other thing, this sale catalogue, to try and... And it was very much something that, you know, the old man had been interested in. I don't think they were particularly... And once Knuckles Cottingham had gone down in the icy deeps off Cape Cod, I don't think there was much. So... Uh, it's a terrible story, really, because it would be rather wonderful to have a Gothic counterpart to the Soane. But I suspect it wasn't as good as the Soane, but he said, loyally. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just to counter that, the Soane's museum had been acquired a few years previously for the nation.
1: It was an outright gift, a gift. Museum. So.
2: I'm wondering if that had the, the, was the final nail in the coffin, because it was a sort of house museum acquisition yeah. and to acquire Cottingham's was just a so similar exercise. Soane also left a lot of money...
1: For its upkeep and you know, as though it was a private act of parliament so you know, in a way Sone had, Sone had provided a really good model mm. um, whereas Cottingham had just died leaving <laughs> his wife with the problems. So, sorry
0: so nice Hunterian precedence there as well um, which I'm sure Caroline could tell you a lot <laughs> more about um, any, any further questions for um, yes on the top lady in the red sweater I would like to know if there was any connection between Cottingham and George Edmund Street because he seemed to be the main church of his at the time.
1: I don't, I don't know, although Street, I think, is on the list of people who wanted to save it. Um, no, he wasn't. No, sorry. Um, I think Street is a sort of later generation. I think um, Lewis Knuckles' Cottingham is sort of 1830s, 40s. Um, and I, th- I sort of think that George Edmund Street is, is the next sort of wave. And as you know, um, every generation of architects reacts against the former. So I suspect they probably didn't hugely admire, Street wouldn't have hugely admired um, Cottingham's work.
0: Can I take Chair's prerogative as well then? Um, Marcus, could you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges that you've faced in putting together this website? Um, and particularly perhaps if Tim's interested in commissioning you, then yeah, exactly. we can could get the pitfalls out of the way now.
3: Um, well, um, this is being recorded, so I have to be <laughs> a bit diplomatic. Um, we
0: can but edit. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but um, I suppose, as, as with any project of this kind, there is um, a, a kind of... A vision, or you know, an idea on the part of someone like me—in my case, an um, academic—in other cases, perhaps museum curators—and the design which the designer who is who is working on the project comes up with. Um, I was fortunate that I was working with someone who was flexible, who interpreted my brief um, on the first occasion in a way that I, you know, I felt I felt could be improved, and we worked together to achieve something which in a sense reflected my my sense of what was distinctive about the project which was with not creating a a website resource or a database but trying to visualize a museum from photographs and create the sensation of moving through space so um, one challenge is always going to be try I suppose um, a kind of diplomacy and negotiation you can't do everything yourself um, other people will have their own perspectives and you, you have, that's, that's hard work. It's hard work for a, an academic who's teaching and, you know, it's a lot of emailing. Um, in terms of, uh, I suppose, problems of method, well, uh, p- potentially it's a problem that, uh, you know, it isn't a continuous navigation of space. I mean, it's, it's the, there's the potential problem that you're misleading people into thinking that they are really looking into the past or that these, these images connect up to each other in a way which is somehow seamless. So um, one challenge I've faced, I suppose, is trying to make it very clear that, that it's, in a sense, an act of interpretation rather than of uh, uh, reconstructing in a strict sense. Um, so th- those are the sort of two issues I would... But at least you have the photographs. Well, that's unusual, and, and, really and what, what struck me was quite how detailed the photographs are. When you, when you zoom in, um, uh, you can see all kinds of things that aren't obvious when the, when the photograph is, is printed or, or in a, a smaller size.
1: And it might be a actually really useful model for other kind of lost... I mean, I was thinking of things like the house of William Burgess Tower House or mm. his house at Buckingham Street, a wonderful, in this case, a sort of architect's interior that we know where a lot of the items are, but they're all over Britain. Um, and it'd be a wonderful way of kind of, you know, repopulating those mm. lost, route, the lost houses.
0: Sam?
3: So. I wonder if either of you could reflect on how this sort of uh, wonderful uh, reconstructive museum history can inform or be deployed in contemporary museum practice. I mean, Marcus, you already have, in a way. Um... I suppose uh, the, the issue that comes to mind most obviously for me is, is, is in terms of practice is, is uh, the, way, the way in which an attempt to connect um, records of a past form of a collection to a collection which still exists might alert um, a museum going audience to the instability of collections sense in which simply because you know, there are lots of objects collected in, in a series of rooms, which which seem to belong together. It doesn't doesn't entail that the collection has had a a stable history, or, or that you can necessarily account even for the presence of some things and the absence of others. Um, so, um, I suppose I, I saw my project as a way of um, addressing some of those questions, but also thinking about how on earth you you deal with the the, the problem that. This collection has been assembled by an individual uh, in collaboration with others, with his curator and the, and the like, uh, but according to his uh, series of objectives and principles and sense of you know um, appropriate uh, meanings. Um, but the collection still exists, and I think it would be unduly restrictive to suggest that it has to perform the functions that Ruskin once intended for it. So you're left with the challenge of how do you How do you make the collection work in the present without extinguishing its past?
0: Silence. (laughs) Well, then, I would um, be grateful if you could join me in thanking all of our speakers that we've had today. Um, It's certainly been uh, very illuminating. Um, I've taken many things away from it. Um, as ladies obviously have to be careful when we go to the museum in case our sensibilities are offended on many occasions. Um, maybe it's a calm down dear incident, I don't know. Um, we're grateful to Henry Welcome for keeping our lovely colleagues over at Euston Road in uh, continuous employment for at least the next 500 years, I think, by the time they've um, interpreted all of the material that was left behind. Um, We've seen chaos in two places, both in the welcome and um, in the uh, collections at Kew, Um, and some rude romping. I'll never go to the gardens with the same kind of frame of mind again, I have to say. Um, But ultimately, the conclusion that I've come away from from today's talks is, when in Peru, don't poke the llamas. (laughs) (laughs) My thanks also go to to, uh, my colleagues, To Sam, um, to Carl, up in the booth there, admirably keeping us on track with all of our audio-visual requirements. Uh, To Louise King, our archivist, to Sarah Pearson, our curator, and to Hayley Kruger, our learning and events officer, without whom today would most certainly not have come together as smoothly as it has done. Um, thanks also to our caterers for a bumper lunch um, there might still be some sandwiches around if anyone's hungry um, and also to the museums and galleries history group um, who have been excellent partners in today's event um, as always it befalls me to remind you that there are evaluation forms we would be very grateful if you could fill them in we do read them and we do even type up the results so they are a useful feedback form for us to continue to improve our offer Um, And finally, um, there are still museums and archive tours going to be um, available in about five minutes up in the uh, Lost Museums exhibition and also in the library if you didn't get a chance to to have a look at that um, at lunchtime. Um, And actually, my very final thing, because I never miss a chance to plug what we're doing, um, and this is a captive audience, um, the 9th of June, just in case you haven't had enough of Lost London today... Um, Philip Davies from English Heritage will be coming to share some of the fantastic images that he's found of the Holborn, Lincoln's Fields and the local area um, for um, an evening lecture at 7 o'clock and there are still some tickets available if you're interested. Thank you very much and um, enjoy the rest of the sunshine when you get to leave the building. Thanks.